This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And I am Roman. And we have a little bit of a departure this week. Yeah, something uh, slightly different to our weekly podcasts. Uh, more of a debate format. We've invited two, how should we phrase it? Well, two professors. Two professors, two leaders in their fields, uh, two very popular people in terms of their views and, and their, their beliefs that they have written about and have spoken about. And this came about because about two months ago, three months ago, there was an article uh, released in which one of our guests uh, spoke about uh, something that's very close to uh, him, which is antinatalism. It's something he's worked on for a lot of his life. And uh, Dr. Peterson is our other guest. We'll get there now. Uh, he responded to it uh, to and tweeted it out and said to people, you know, here's this view. He, he didn't, didn't particularly agree. And we saw that there was quite a reaction to that. And we thought, let's let's get these two gentlemen into a room, so to speak. One of uh, them lives in Cape Town. One of them lives in Toronto. So we had to kind of make some technical wizardry happen. And so we've got these two guests together today. So, Ramon, would you like to introduce the first? So our first guest is Professor David Benatar. He's a professor of philosophy and the head of department of philosophy at the University of Cape Town. He is author of several books, and namely Better to Never Have Been, which is on antinatalism, The Second Sexism, and his latest one, which is called The Human Predicament. His academic interests include moral and social philosophy, applied ethics, as well as the philosophy of law and religion. And as mentioned, our uh, other guest is Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. He is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. His main areas of study are abnormal, social, and personality psychology. He has particular interests in religious and ideological belief. He is the author of Maps of Meaning, and he's also the author of the upcoming book, 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. And it's important to note that we do not intend to partake in this debate. Uh, we just invited the two professors to do the debate themselves. We will climb in if necessary, but we would like to be the, this to be a debate between the two professors as much as possible. Absolutely. Let's uh, get them on the line. And we have uh, both uh, Professor David Benatar and Professor Jordan B. Peterson on the line. Uh, David is in Cape Town. Jordan is in Toronto, and we are in Johannesburg, so this should be interesting. Uh, gentlemen, uh, as mentioned in the intro, uh, David is well known for his work with regards to antinatalism. Uh, Jordan, you've, you've come across it recently um, and have read uh, David's work, and there was quite a polarized reaction to this online. And David, do you want to maybe just describe your basic premise and what antinatalism is? Sure. Uh, antinatalism is the view that it's wrong to bring new sentient beings into existence, and that would include new human beings. 
And there are a variety of arguments for that conclusion. I categorize them in two broad ways, either sort of philanthropic arguments or misanthropic arguments. Obviously, when I use those terms, I'm narrowing the scope of antinatalism and speaking specifically about human beings, but parallel points could be made about, uh, about other species. So among the philanthropic arguments are arguments uh, that bringing somebody into existence is bad because of what it does to that person that you bring into existence. And there are a range of arguments of that kind. Uh, misanthropic arguments are ones which suggest we ought not to bring new human beings into existence because of the harms that they will do to other beings, including other human beings and other animals. Do you want me to say a bit more about what some of the arguments are? If you could, that would be, uh, be great. Sure. So let me focus first on the philanthropic arguments. One argument that I have is a kind of axiological asymmetry. That is an asymmetry of value between the good things in life and the bad things in life. So obviously if you've got an existing person, uh, the good things are good and the bad things are bad. But when you're contemplating bringing somebody into existence, you have to consider the counterfactual scenario where uh, the person doesn't exist. And so uh, I think that in that scenario, the absent bad things, that is to say the things that the bad things that could have occurred to that person, uh, but don't because they're not brought into existence, that's good. Whereas the absence of the good things that that person would experience, uh, that's not bad, and it's not bad because there's no need to be deprived of it. Now, there are lots of arguments that I have for that asymmetry. I think it's actually a quite, uh, a quite widespread, uh, widespread accepted asymmetry, except when people see where it leads. Uh, but I do have arguments as well to support uh, that asymmetry. And if you follow that asymmetry to, through to its conclusion, you find out that coming into existence can never be a net benefit. But that argument by itself is not sufficient to show that appropriation is wrong. Because it could be that coming into existence is just a mild harm, and it might be overridden by other kinds of considerations, including the interests of existing people in bringing these new people into existence. And so there's another argument, also a philanthropic argument, which says that the quality of human life is really bad, much, bad, much worse than, than most people think. I don't mean in a given instance. I'm talking about over the course of a lifetime. And uh, as a result of that, there's a quite a serious harm that you're inflicting on somebody by bringing them into existence. And for that reason, I think that it's always wrong. There are also the misanthropic arguments. So if you bring somebody into existence, the likelihood that they're going to do quite a lot of damage is, is pretty high. And uh, although I don't think that the misanthropic argument is a categorical argument against procreation, I think that at least in many cases it's going to overdetermine the case. So that's a kind of broad outline. Uh, thank you, David. So, so Jordan, having heard that and, and having read the book, mm -hmm. uh, which you have uh, read in the past, uh, what are your, ma your main objections, if any, to David's arguments? Well, the first, the first thing that I would like to point out is that I don't have any disagreement with the idea that the claim that life is suffering is a valid claim. So I, that isn't the the point of disagreement. I think that there's been broad, a broad consensus reached at the deepest levels of human thought that there's an existential conundrum that's associated with being and that the conundrum has two elements. One is the implicit tragedy of, of being, which seems to be a consequence of 
the limitations of conscious creatures like ourselves, the, the, the built-in limitations that are associated with mortality and suffering. And so you could think of that as the tragedy of life. And then the second category of suffering is a consequence of the malevolence that also seems to be part and parcel of human interactions and human existence. And the malevolence malevolence is something I would say that's not... The tragic element of being is something that you can also point out as characterizing the lives of animals. Uh, the, the additional subjection to malevolence, whether it's our own personal malevolence or the malevolence of others, I think is something that's uniquely human. So the fundamental existential problem is suffering and malevolence. And I think that there's been broad consensus reached, as I said, at the deepest levels of human um, of philosophical and theological thought that those are problems of overwhel- of an overwhelming magnitude. So, but it's the conclusion that's derived as a consequence of that observation that I have uh, my problems with, and I have a variety of problems with them. The first issue is that let's let's talk about the um, asymmetry argument that there's more suffering in life than there is good. The problem with that is that there's no that the only way that you can drive derive that conclusion from the data, so to speak, is to weight the data a priori so that the suffering mathematically or arithmetically is seen to be of higher magnitude than the than the good. And since there's no way of assigning a weighting to the suffering or the pleasure, let's say, that isn't arbitrary, if you start with your conclusion, which is that life is uh, life is a phenomena that should never exist, all you have to do is work backwards from that conclusion and set the weightings properly, and then your premises can justify your conclusion. And that's a logical flaw that I saw permeating uh, David's book on antinatalism. And it, it, it's you could think about it as a social scientist is that well you have to set your weighting systems up, you know because I could say with perfect justification that one episode of romantic bliss is such that it outweighs all the suffering that I have ever encountered in my entire life, and there's no way of disproving that. I'm not saying that that's a valid claim, but there's no way of disproving that claim because the weighting system is arbitrary. So you can't make the case that there's an asymmetry without defining the asymmetry as extant to begin with. and Well, that's one, but I'll let David respond to that. But I have a, a variety of other objections as well. So. so I don't think that's true. First of all, I've pointed out different asymmetries. The one is the axiological asymmetry, which I described. That's the, where we assign different values to the presence and absence of good things and bad things. But I've also referred, although not in that particular book, to empirical asymmetries between good and bad. Uh, and there I suggest that the bad things, as a matter of empirical fact, outweigh uh, the good things in life. And I give some examples which I think will speak against somebody just asserting things to the contrary. This is specifically not a priori, it's a posteriori. It's a result of our experience of the world. So if you think, for example, about um, pains and pleasures and you think about how long pleasures can go on and how short-lived, uh, how long pains can go on, how short-lived pleasures are, I think you're going to see that's one 
a metric whereby there's going to be more pain than uh, pleasure. So think of the phenomenon of chronic pain. There are people who live their lives or lead large parts of their lives in chronic pain. They, they're in pain all the time. Nobody is sitting with chronic pleasure. There may be people who have an ongoing sense of satisfaction, but that's just mirrored by an ongoing sense of dissatisfaction. If we're looking specifically at, at pain, there is such a thing as chronic pain, there is no such thing as a chronic pleasure. If you think about how bad the worst pains are, they're much worse than uh, the, the best pleasures are good. And we can test this with people. Uh, it may not be ethical to do so, but we could test it. We could offer people uh, exchanges. We could say, we will give you uh, five minutes or ten minutes of the most sublime pleasure if you're willing to endure two or three minutes of the worst pains possible. Uh, that's not a deal that I think most rational people are going to take. Uh, if you think about how uh, quickly people can become injured and how slow recovery is if people recover at all, if you look at uh, how long it takes to acquire knowledge and how quickly it can be lost, let's say by a blow to the head or uh, by a stroke or some, uh, some other calamity of that kind, if you look at all these sorts of things, I think you can't resist the conclusion a posteriori that the bad things in life outweigh the good things. Well, uh, as I mentioned previously, I'm not disagreeing with the idea that there's an intrinsic element to life that involves both suffering and subjugation to malevolence. I'm just pointing out that you're making what's essentially an arithmetic argument. And in order to make that argument, the first thing is that you have to assume that these things are, are additive in some simple no. manner. Well, how well, else can you justify the asymmetry? You're making an arithmetical argument, as far as I can tell. The point about add additivity is different from the point that you were making. You, so you were saying that I have to stipulate a priori that uh, there is less good uh, than, uh, than there is bad. And my response to that is to say, no, I don't have to do that. Uh, when I'm speaking about these empirical asymmetries, the whole point about them is that they're not a priori, they're a posteriori. We acquire this knowledge by, by looking at the world to see the way it is. And when we do that, I'm suggesting, we find that there is going to be more, uh, uh, more bad yeah. than there is good. Well, I understand yeah. that argument, but I would also say that you have to put parameters around your measurement processes in order to come up with that sort of uh, with that well, sort of what, what are the scheme, because the you can't calc. Well, for example, if if I do something good in the world, let's say, in order to measure that impact, you have to parameterize, parameterize it in both time and space in some arbitrary manner, because you can't calculate the full consequences of, say, a good action on my part, because you don't know how that's going to propagate out into the future. So, so the point that I'm making is that in order to justify the asymmetry argument, you have to reduce this your measurements in a qualitative manner and that it's always possible to quibble, especially when you're deriving conclusions as serious as the ones that you're deriving. It's always possible to quibble and critique the manner in which you do that initial parameterization. Uh, and so you can always win the argument that you're making because all you have to do is say, well, if you measure it properly, the suffering outweighs the good. But I'm, and I would say, well, this, the measurement system is arbitrary, and it's it's it's, it's, it's tools. It's not arbitrary because uh, we can go through uh, one by one the various ways in which the bad outweighs the good, and we can have a discussion about that. Uh, it's it's not it's not arbitrary. Somebody just comes to me and says, "Well, look, the the best uh, pleasures in life are much much better than the worst pains are bad." 
uh, we can test that. We can see whether they're really willing to take the exchanges that I was proposing earlier. And I don't think that well, most rational people are going to do that. Well, I agree. So this is not something sort of arbitrary stipulating. Well, it's, here's how it's arbitrary. The first thing is, is that you're, the, the laboratory condition that you're describing, which is, well, are, would you be willing to be subject to the, subjected to the worst torture in order to have the, the most sublime experience? The answer to that is no. doesn't indicate that there's an asymmetry in experience. It just indicates that you can set up a laboratory condition under which you can make someone's life sufficiently unbearable in the moment so that they would wish for its cessation. And I wouldn't dispute that for a moment, but I don't well, that think that that justifies the, the no. It well, it, only if you assume, for example, that the justification for the world is the balance between pleasure and pain, and that and that no. those are somehow opposing forces, and that the way that you justify the world is by saying that it involves more pleasure than pain. And I, that's another part of your argument that I think is is is. Right. Uh, but that's the same part of the argument. So. Uh, you, you're constantly saying that I'm just asserting that there's more good, that there's more bad than good. And I, yeah, I I'm think it's built into your measurement I'm, structure. No, uh, I'm trying to break it down. Uh, so I've made that claim, but I want to substantiate that claim through a series of more modest claims of the kind that I've that I've mentioned. And your response to me is to say, well, that's just arbitrary. Now, what I will concede to you is that there can be no certainty in this. So, of course, there can be uncertainty when you. If I do something good, I don't know what all the consequences of that are going to be. So I'm going to be I'm going to have an element of uncertainty about that. Similarly, if I do something bad, I'm going to be uncertain about all the consequences of that. So I'm not making the claim that any one of us is omniscient and that we can know every last variable here. But if we're trying to understand something about the world, there are certain things that we have access to. There are certain bits of knowledge that we have. And I'm suggesting that on the basis of that, we ought to reach the conclusion, and it is a conclusion, not a premise. We ought to reach the conclusion that there is more bad than good. Okay, so let's imagine that we derive a arithmetic statement such that there's four units of suffering for every two units of pleasure. And so you make a ratio four to two, and you say, well, it's two to one against uh, pleasure on the pain side. And that, as far as I can tell, that's the arithmetic equivalent of your argument. And I would say, well, the fact that there's uncertainty in those initial measures means that you can't go down the arithmetic well, path. Because the only way that you can make position. an arithmetic argument is by not having that kind of uncertainty in your initial measurements. And you're also assuming that the appropriate way to judge the quality of life is by doing a pleasure versus pain calculation. And, and I think I don't see that the I don't see that powerful arguments for the justification of being are predicated on the notion that you can do a simple pleasure minus pain or pain minus pleasure arithmetic analysis and and come out with a deficit on the side of pleasure and therefore conclude that being is not justifiable. So I, and I think made, that the more you made two simply oversimplifications of my position. First of all, you're wanting you're assuming that I'm going to put a numerical. Um, number, I'm going to put a number on the claim that I'm making about the pain outweighing uh, the pleasure. And I'm not doing that. I'm specifically... Well, you are if you're making an argument of asymmetry. That's exactly what you're doing because you can't make no, an argument of asymmetry otherwise. Saying, there's a difference between saying that we have every reason for thinking that there is more pain in the world than there is pleasure. There's a difference between saying that and saying that I can give you the precise ratio between the two. 
Do you parody my position if you reduce me to the sort of specific claim that you're saying, the very precise claim? No, that I, you're I specify it and make it precise. But I'm willing uh, to go with your secondary claim, which is, okay, you can't specify the ratio precisely. You can specialize it vaguely, and it still comes out negatively with regards to the value of being. I'm willing to go yes. along with that without... So, well, but I just think that's a vague arithmetic claim instead of a precise one. I don't think that improves fine. it in the but least. It, do, it doesn't have to be precise. In fact, it's, it's, it's ridiculous if you make it precise. But if it's that, vague... Yes, pre yeah, precisely. Yeah, but if, you, but if you keep it vague, it can be true and vague. There can be things that are true and vague. You can have a general, make a statement of a very general kind that is true without you being able to make that in a very precise way. And the second point that you made a moment ago was to suggest that I'm reducing all of this to pleasure and pain, and I've quite specifically stated on multiple occasions that I'm not doing that. That when I speak about pleasures and pains, I'm using those as exemplars of the good things and the bad things in life, and I frequently speak about things that go beyond pleasure and pain. So a moment ago I gave the example of knowledge, and I said how difficult it is to acquire knowledge. Uh, it's an arduous process. But you can lose things very rapidly and, and, and effortlessly. Uh, so there's an example that does not boil down to pleasure and pain. It's about the good things and the bad things in life. Uh, okay. But it well, shows how there's going to be more bad All right, two things about that. I would say that still does boil down in some sense to a pleasure versus pain argument because the implicit claim is that because knowledge is difficult and it can be removed rapidly in an asymmetric manner that that's somehow bad and bad as far as I can tell given the manner in which you're structuring your argument is associated with something like pain or lack of pleasure. No, but, no, but, I'm specifically But I'm also, sorry, it. sorry, one more thing. I'm not disputing the fact that life is tragic and that people are subject to malevolence, let's say. What I'm disputing is your claim that the fact that that's the case means that you can move to the next position in your argument and to argue that being as such is something that should not exist. So we have to stop arguing about whether or not life is suffering because I'm already willing to make that claim. I'm even willing to accept the claim that it's asymmetric in favor of suffering. And this is a more – so let's leave the arithmetic argument behind, although I do think that you're basically making an arithmetic argument, precise or vague. But even if you're not and what you're doing is saying that there's an asymmetry in favor of suffering, okay, that's, that's fine. I also believe that. But to move beyond that and say that because there's an asymmetry in, for, in, in favor of suffering, that being is something that isn't justifiable, doesn't follow from that premise, not, not self-evidently. And okay, so there's, a, there's a deeper flaw, which is that if you do accept the fact that suffering justifies the desire for non-being, then the actions that are predicated on the acceptance of that presupposition exacerbate suffering rather than reducing it, which, is, which I think is the most... That's the part of the argument that you're making that I think is actually, um, I think it's ethically dangerous, and I'll get into that later. So Good, okay, so I think it is good that we move on, but before we move on, as you've suggested, I, I want to just reiterate that uh, you've suggested that when I attribute value to knowledge, that I'm reducing that to pleasure and ignorance to pain, and I want to just clarify that I'm not doing that. Uh, and I'm, no, I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting that, that... I think everything is boiled down to pleasure and pain. I'm suggesting that you're implicitly assuming that the loss of knowledge is akin to pain or people wouldn't no. object to it, not, the, not that ignorance is pain, that the sudden no. loss of acquired knowledge is pain. Okay, I, if it's not pain, then what is it? It's something else that's bad. In fact, I often think that knowledge involves pain and ignorance often involves uh, pleasure. So I'm, not, I'm certainly not 
thinking that the loss of knowledge is bad because it involves pain. If you, if so you then why is it bad? Knowledge, well, why is it I bad in your scheme? Because I think that knowledge is generally a good thing. There, there are going to be occasions where it's not, but generally it's a good thing. And, and not because of the pleasure that it brings us, but because of the understanding that it brings us about the world. Okay, but, but what about, I'm not disagreeing with that. It's the loss of, the, the specific issue is you're making the case that the loss of knowledge, especially the sudden loss of hard accrued knowledge, is somehow negative, if we can't say pain, that people associate that with suffering or they wouldn't object to it. And that's what I'm no, trying to get at. Is Well, then why would they object to the fact that their hard-earned knowledge is, can, be suddenly, can suddenly disappear? Because uh, the gaining the knowledge was good and losing it is bad, and it doesn't have to be that you suffer as a result of the loss for in order for it to be bad. Okay, then uh, let's define bad. It seems to me that you're defining bad. Like one of the key elements of your entire argument is that bad is associated with suffering. And that's because that's what's justifying your antinatalist position. No, so if no, loss of exactly. knowledge is... Okay, go ahead. Uh, you, you keep saying that I'm associating bad with a pain, and I'm telling you I'm not doing that. Uh, okay, what are you associating it with? Well, I think there can be a, a variety of things that can be good, different things that can be good, and different things that can be, uh, that can be bad. So well, let's define bad. Sure. Pain, okay. Pain is one thing that's, that's bad. I think uh, ignorance is bad. I think that uh, malevolence is bad. Uh, so okay, why is, why, is why is ignorance bad? Well, uh, because knowledge is something that's valuable. It's the flip side of it. Uh, but uh, what I'm worried, we're going we're gonna to get down, I think we are going to get bogged down if we go down this route. And I don't think that you and I, especially given our professions, disagree about knowledge being good. If, I mean, if we disagree about that and about ignorance being bad, um, then I'm not sure quite what we're engaged in. As, as, uh, as No, as I wouldn't disagree with that at all. I, I'm just okay. curious about how it is when you state something is bad that you justify the claim that it's bad. Because well, what, as far as I can tell, your, your argument in your, your antinatalist argument is, is based on a, a, an me, attempt at quantification. And, yeah? Let me flip the question around to you. Why do you think ignorance is bad? Because I think that it increases the probability of unnecessary suffering. And, and I stress unnecessary. So you are a hedonist? I don't think you, that, you, that necessarily follows reduce, from that simple statement. Well, I'm asking you, do you, do you want to reduce all good things uh, to pleasure or to the potential for pleasure and all bad things to pain or the potential for pain? Well, I, it would depend on how you define those two terms. <clears throat> Oh, definitely. I don't think that that's a sufficient uh, categorical scheme because I don't think that emotions, and I'm speaking here more as a, as a psychological scientist, I, don't think, I think that emotions are differentiable sufficiently so that pleasure and pain, well, it's clear that pleasure and pain don't cover the, don't cover the territory sufficiently. Okay, so, for example, you. there's anxiety, and anxiety is a, a state of negative emotion, but it's technically dissociable from pain. And so, so I, I agree. That's why I don't. It's one of the reasons why I don't think we should reduce everything to pain and pleasure. The point I'm making is that you can cash out my arguments uh, in purely hedonistic terms, but you don't have to. You can cash them out in broader terms. And in fact, specifically in the book, I show that if you use uh, other 
other senses of well-being like a desire satisfaction account or an objective list account on all of these accounts you can reach the same conclusion so I don't think anything in my view commits me to hedonism I think you can cash out this view on any number of views but I do think that we should move on as you've suggested yep. to this uh, to this other idea so you're agreeing with me even about at least for the sake of argument but I think you actually agree that um, that life is tragic, as you put it, that there is more uh, pain than, uh, than, or more bad things than good things, and you think it doesn't follow from that that uh, being isn't justifiable. Now, that phrase right. that you've used is, I think, uh, problematic because it's, it's ambiguous. When you say being is not justifiable, you could mean that continuing to be is not justifiable, or you could mean that coming into being is not justifiable. And uh, I have different views about those two things. So those of us who already exist, I think it could be the case that for much of our lives, it's not so bad that we ought to take our lives, that we ought to end our lives. It might get to that point, and I think with very many people, towards the end it does get to that point. But it might not be that at every point in your life uh, it's the case that you'd be better off dead. So my point is not about that. My point is about bringing somebody into existence. So you're contemplating now, or somebody's contemplating bringing a child into existence, and you know that in the course of the life that that child will lead, it will have more bad than good in its life, and that the amount of bad will be pretty significant. Will be, it'll be, there'll be lots of bad in that life. And you're objecting to my drawing the inference that it is wrong to bring that person into existence. I want well, to I can why. give you a very direct example of that. Um, mm. And I don't know if this is a, a, a fair move, but we'll go with it. Um, I have a child who's been very ill and who's suffered tremendously. And I think I'm more familiar with that than most people. Um, and there were times during her life where I would say that her suffering had reached the point of being sufficiently unbearable so that it posed a threat to her continued mental health. And so for me, none of this argument is, is abstract or academic. But I would say two things, three things. First is that I know with certainty that if you asked her whether her existence to date has been something that she would repeat, her answer to that would be yes. The second thing I would say, and I think this is a deeper argument, is that because I've thought very much about it's not as if I think that the arguments that you're making are somehow trivial. And and I, I don't want to give that impression. And I don't want to go discuss the arguments that you're making in a in a way that casually dismisses them for, for methodological reasons, even though I think there are methodological flaws. I would say that your argument flies in the face of the deepest human judgment. And and here's my here's my lo- logic for that. So If you have a child and you're acutely aware of their potential for suffering, let's say they're three or four years old, and you know that they can be damaged in all sorts of terrible ways, partly by the force of the natural world and partly by the force of the social world and partly by individual human malevolence, then you're, of course, terrified for their fragility. And then you might say, well, because that fragility is such an awful burden, it would have perhaps been better never to engender it to begin with. 
And then I might say, well, do you really believe that? And I would say the answer to that is, well, do you love the child or not in the deepest sense? And if the answer to that is that you do, then I would say that with the entire force of your being, rather than with your mere rational mind, which is attempting to do uh, a full quantitative analysis, then the love that you express for someone who's fragile and subject to malevolence is the decision at the deepest part of your being that their being is fundamentally good despite the fact of its subjugation to tragedy and malevolence. So, I, and I, I've, like, I've tried very hard to put a crowbar underneath that argument and see if I could flip it in an antinatalist direction, and it's not evident. And I could say the same thing with my elderly father. Like, he's starting to fall apart, and, you know, he's very painfully aware of that, as is everyone around him. And I, I might say, well, are there steps that I would take to eradicate his vulnerability such that he would no longer be subject to that sort of decay? And the, the answer to that is, well, as you eradicate in vulnerabilities and attempt to redress them so that that suffering is no longer uh, an existential reality, then you start to dismantle the very elements of the being that you actually happen to to respect and admire and love. And so the fact that human beings can even manifest love for one another in, in the deepest sense is an indication that our judgment about being is not negative. So that, um, that I think, rests on a confusion between the case where somebody already exists and the case where somebody doesn't. So if we take your daughter, for example, who does already exist, uh, there's an identifiable person there, there's somebody with whom you're uh, connected, with whom you have, for whom you have this love. And I think when you ask yourself, uh, should she have been brought into, do you imagine her no longer being there? I think what you're imagining is her vanishing as opposed to never being. Because when you ask that question that you posed to me, like, uh, would you, uh, do you love the child? Well, I think that uh, obviously if there's an existing child, you'll want it to continue living so long as continued li uh, living is in its interests. But if you're imagining prospectively, you say, I'm going to have this child and whatever it might be or whoever it might be, I'm going to love it. Should I have it? I think the answer to that question is going to be no, because if I'm going to, if I care about the interests of that future potential person, and there's going to be more bad in that child's life than there's going to be good, uh, I must avoid that child's life like the plague. I must avoid it coming into existence, and I must, and I must do so out of love. Well, if you okay, if you assume that, as, and this gets us back to our initial pro, initial problem, which is that the bad and the good can be arithmetically set against one another and that, that there's some sort of finitude of measurement in relationship to that. And here, here's that brings me to another point of contention, which is that there are various ways of conducting yourself in the world. And so you can't necessarily make generalizations about the quality of being across beings. The, the, the more profound uh, pro-natalist, let's say, responses to the fact of suffering in the world say something like the, ma the, the, the manner in which suffering should be confronted is a matter of personal, let's say, let's say character, and that there are modes of being in the world that justify being. And, and, and this is where I think the argument that you're making is most severely um, 
what would you call it, flawed. So if we accept the conclusion that there's a tremendous amount of suffering associated with individual being and tremendous subjection to malevolence, the answer, the question emerges, not whether or not being is worth, um, is, is, is something that can be judged worthwhile, but which modes of being might be judged worthwhile. And so, part of the reason that I've been so attracted to, say, archetypal psychology is because archetypal, archetypal psychology lays out a path of being, which is something like voluntary confrontation with tragedy and malevolence, and notes that that's a pathway that produces a, a quality of being that, that transcends the suffering and limits the malevolence. And so it, it isn't that life is something that you can quantify and then compare because there are modes of life that are qualitatively different and you can't compare across them in a quantitative manner. Well, so there are uh, modes of being that justify existence and that's basically the grounds for what you might describe as ethics. So uh, I tell you what I find uh, frustrating about this is partly you, you sort of jump from one argument to another as I engage one. Uh, but there's another sense in which you're really just offering the same argument in a different form. Because I don't disagree with you that once we exist and we are in a world of suffering, that there are better and worse ways of dealing with that, better and worse ways of confronting that. And that um, it does say something about one's character, how one responds to the world that one finds around one. Uh, you say that this can sort of justify existence, but I, what I think it does is it justifies the existence that is after you already exist. Uh, but, but I think it's, it's, it's indecent to suggest that you would bring into existence a being that would then have to face these challenges when there's absolutely no reason from that being's point of view why you should bring it into existence in the first place. So the voluntary confrontation with tragedy and malevolence that you speak about, that's voluntary for the person that already exists. They exist, they find this world around them, they, and now they voluntarily confronted in one way rather than another way. But nobody is voluntarily confronting existence per se in the sense of having chosen to exist. That's something that's imposed on, uh, on us by others. Uh, and I'm asking and why we justify then making this imposition. I think if, you, well, if we agree you know, as we it's... are for the sake of argument <clears throat> that there's more bad in life than good, why would you possibly well, create well, a being that then has to confront that? Well, it's funny that, that the way that you that you um, phrase the question you know, it shows implicitly the manner in which you, you expect and structure the answer. You said, well, why would we impose um, the necessity of being on someone who hasn't chosen it? You might say, well, I could, I could also rephrase the question and say, well, it's an offer of an opportunity rather than an imposition of a dreadful fate. I mean, the I fact that you regard it as an imposition of a dreadful fate in the manner in which you posed the question indicates that the conclusion is implicit in the premise. Like, I have a granddaughter now, and I would say, well, she's been offered the opportunity to exist. And you'd say, well, no, that was inflicted upon her, but that begs the question. Well, I wouldn't well, say it was inflicted upon her. If you don't like that terminology, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not wedded to it. Uh, that's, it's not the terminology that bothers me. So you're thinking about having a child, and you know that that child exists. It's going to have more bad uh, than good. 
uh, why would you? No, well, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. I would say that 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 child is going to be exposed to suffering and malevolence. I'm not going to say that there's going to be more bad than good in some broad you did sense. You did well, earlier. I said that uh, that the idea that there's suffering and malevolence in the world is something that I'm not willing to dispute. And that there you may be more further. suffering and malevolence in the world than the counterpart. Uh, I think you can make that argument. But I think it's very much dependent on the manner in which people conduct themselves in the world. And part of your argument, too, is that you you make the case that you can somehow separate the categories of those who already exist from those who only might conceivably exist with no cross-contamination, so to speak, of the argument. And I'm not, I think that the reason that, that you set the argument up that way is because it enables the justification for the claim, for the antinatalist claim. I don't think that there's a, a, a sustainable and uh, properly justifiable distinction between those who only might exist and those who currently exist. I mean, do you think it would be okay to, to put someone out of their misery when they're asleep if they didn't know it? Like, let's say you have someone who's friendless and familyless, and they're asleep, and your judgment is, well, being is something that shouldn't occur. Well, why not just slip them a, euth a euthanasia agent and put them out of their misery? Well, let me come to that now, but first of all, I want to just point out something in the dialectic of our argument here. So we started out by disagreeing, about not about whether life involves suffering, that you agreed, but you thought that the asymmetry was unwarranted, the asymmetry between the amount of bad and good that there was. And we had a bit of an argument about that. And then you said, well, you know, why are we even debating this? Because you're actually willing to grant that there is more suffering than good. And so we were going to proceed on the basis of that. And then we had a discussion, and we've come sort of full circle, because now you're wanting to dispute that, uh, that uh, original claim that got us onto the second part of the, of the discussion. So there's something sort of... Well, okay, okay, so, so fine. I, I, understand, I understand your objection. Well, so let's say you could look at the world as a whole, and you could say, well, there's more suffering than good. And, and I said I would be willing to go along with that. But then I modified that claim. I specified it and said, yes, but in the individual situation, it depends on how it is that people conduct themselves in life. So even okay. if you say, if someone is doing it, if a lot of people are doing a bad job of something, let's say, that doesn't mean that there aren't some people who are doing a good job of it. And then I would say, well, the good job that some people are doing is exactly the medication for the suffering and malevolence of being. And if that was more widespread, that it would help solve the problem. So there's no logical inconsistency in my argument. There's just a further refinement of it. And I, I said also that I was going to give the devil his due, so to speak, right from the beginning and not go willy-nilly uh, attack every single one of the claims that you're making, but to... But to use an Iron Man approach or a Steel Man approach instead of a Straw Man approach. There is plenty of suffering in the world. There's plenty of malevolence in the world. Maybe that even overshadows the, uh, the positive elements, let's say, or the elements that justify being. But just because that is the case in the aggregate okay. doesn't mean it's necessarily the case in the specific. And it's the specific that I want to discuss. There are modes of being that justify being. At least that's, that would be my counterclaim. 
and the modes of being. And when you bring someone to the world, you offer them the opportunity to engage in the mode of being that justifies being, rather than well, inflicting pointless and 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 reprehensible suffering on them. It's an opportunity. So I think it's helpful that you've uh, that you've now refined your position in this way. In one way, it's helpful. In another way, it's not, because I don't think it actually gets you out of the difficulties that are presented to you. So, if we're thinking about a specific person, and uh, we think about them coming into existence and they're and they and they're suffering, uh, I don't think we're offering them an opportunity. So, think about an analogy here. Think about a scenario where you could unjustly imprison uh, a number of people. Uh, and of course, that's a bad thing. I think it's going to be a hardship for them. It's going to be an injustice as well. But uh, they might react to this in different ways. Some of them might react to it in very constructive ways and do very good things with this injustice. Uh, they might, for example, bring important skills to the prison. They might uh, facilitate the improvement of uh, their fellow inmates. There are all kinds of ways in which they might respond in very noble ways to their uh, condition. And others, of course, might just be broken down by this injustice that's been inflicted on them. Uh, the fact that some people will respond well to that situation does not seem to me a justification for having unfairly incarcerated them. And I would say something similar by bringing somebody into existence. The fact that some people respond to the adversities, that they uh, do a better job of, uh, of, of responding to this, doesn't, it seem to me, justify the, uh, the bringing of them into existence in the first place. Yes, well, okay. Um, I See, I also think that that, that indicates the proper level on which this discussion should take place because what you've basically put forward there is something like a statement of of faith, although I would say it's a statement of negative faith. Your statement of negative faith is the conditions of existence are such that imposing them on someone is, in fact, cruel. And my position would be the conditions of existence are such that offering them the opportunity to exist is a positive good. And there's no way of, and this is why there's been an emphasis for for as far back as you can go in human discussions about exactly this sort of issue, about the necessity of faith. You have to make an axiomatic statement somewhere along the way to ground your mode of being. And the two axiomatic statements that we're discussing are at odds with one another, but there's no way that you can use derived evidence to support one or the other. They're, in fact, statements of faith. So let me and ask you the sort of, yeah? Let's imagine that somebody uh, is uh, considering having a child, and uh, they do some genetic tests, and they find out that there's a strong likelihood that if they and their partner were to produce a child, it would have a very severe genetic abnormality that would mean that the child would have a life of suffering even a short life of suffering, let's say five years, and then die. Now, do you think that conceiving that child would be offering it an opportunity or doing something wrong? Well, I would say in a situation like that, and this is the problem with philosophical discussions of that sort, is the devil is specifically in the details. And I tend not to answer philosophical generalizations of that sort that have that specific point. Because no, I'm I would asking say, a practical question. Uh, Let's imagine no, no, you, no. Actually, you're not asking me a practical question. Like I've dealt with questions like that literally 
dozens of times in my clinical practice. And one of the things that I've learned from that is that the devil's in the details. You know, you might say, here's a slight variant of that. Imagine that you have a woman and you're discussing whether or not she should have a child and there is some probability that the child will have a genetic abnormality because that runs in her family. Maybe it's schizophrenia. And you have a serious discussion about whether or not it's justifiable for her to take that risk. And the answer to that is it's unbelievably dependent on the specific particularities of that person's situation and requires a, an, in, an analysis of variables that far exceed the number of variables that you put forward in your test case. And in your test case, you set it up so that the answer that I'm required to give is one that justifies the conclusion that you wish to reach. But I would say it's a bad model of actual reality, and it's not a kind of philosophical game that I'm interested in engaging in. So because I mean, the devil's in the details. If you're asking whether there are children whose lives are so dreadful that the opportunity to not have brought them into existence, given knowledge of that dreadful fate, is 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 justifiable. I would say I could imagine circumstances under which that might be the case, but I don't believe that you could generalize from that to any any antinatalist conclusion of any sort. And I don't think that you answered my question about the friendless, familyless person who's asleep. And I do know, for example, that antinatalist arguments of that sort were precisely used by um, by by um, the Germans in the 1930s as they started to accelerate their euthanasia programs. You know, they defined people's lives as characterized by unbearable suffering when they were starting to clean out the mental asylums, for example, and justified the use of involuntary euthanasia on the grounds of decreasing unnecessary suffering. So there's a there's a tremendous danger in the in the antinatalist position because okay, so it's now what I've it's, noticed is a further switch now in the argument. Um, you were responding to one point of mine, and then you sort of segued now into the argumentum ad Hitlerium. Well, I thought and, I dealt. I'm, I'm, I thought I dealt with the. I thought I dealt with the objection, the question that you asked me with regards to bringing a damaged child into the world, and I just switched to a different question. And the question is the implications of your argument, the ethical implications of our argument. We can leave that aside for now if you'd like. But I thought I dealt with your your question about bringing a child into the world whose existence would be nothing but suffering. The devil's in the details. I understand the devil's in the details. I understand that there are going to be specifics there. Of course, it depends on where you set your threshold, and some people are more tolerant of the kinds of suffering that they're, that they're going to uh, allow their children to experience than other people are. So I, I recognize that when I was offering the case of the child who's going to suffer and, and die in, in infancy, I wasn't suggesting that immediately we're going to generalize from there uh, to the antinatalist position. What I was trying to do is get a kind of uh, a wedge in the door there to show you that you wouldn't uh, agree that every instance of in of bringing a child into existence where it's going to suffer is to offer that child an opportunity. So that language that you're saying of offering an opportunity is, I think, at least as troubling as uh, the language of inflicting existence. Yeah, okay, I'm perfectly willing to agree with that. It's at least as troubling. But that means that, that there's something to be said for both arguments, which is the case that I'm making. You know, I'm no, not so making the case that every single... 
uh, life under every single condition is worth worth having in that moment. I mean, so so, but your antinatalist position is absolute. And if I can put a wedge in there and say, well, well, wait a second, there's conditions under which your argument doesn't apply, and those Look are the, the situations. Look at the methodology that you use for that. So. When you want to show the conditions where it is warranted to bring the child into existence, the way you justify that is by telling me what that child will do with its life. So if it faces its life and it faces it well and it confronts the tragedy well, that somehow that justifies having brought it into existence in the first place. And um, that is to argue from the perspective of somebody who already exists. That is a different kind of decision from one where you bringing somebody into existence. Now you've asked Well, I would also say here's here's another way of looking at it. So let's say you bring a new child into being and you pledge having done so to teach that child how to deal properly with the unbearable lightness of being and you teach them that the appropriate approach to malevolence and tragedy is to confront it forthrightly to bear up it bear up under the tragedy and to restrict the malevolence. And then as a consequence of that, you help engender someone who's not only good for themselves in their own life, but who lives as a, as a let's say, a beacon to others in the light and the darkness so that the sum total of suffering in the world is dramatically reduced as a consequence of their behavior. That's, well, a, that's, that's, a, high, that's a high probability event if, if you're careful and fortunate about how you conduct yourself in relationship to that child. Well, there are multiple issues that are coming up here. One is about how much good your child's going to do to others. But I, and I can address that later, but I find that argument an appalling argument. I mean, let's imagine you were, you were to remove your child's leg, let's say, at birth, but you were to couple that uh, amputation with the sort of upbringing and education that enabled it to deal with this tragedy and to make a positive effect on the world. I don't think that for a second that would justify your removal of the child's leg. I don't think that if you... <laughs> with this education I, that you provide... That doesn't help I don't think that if you're the sort of person who would amputate, amputate your child's leg at birth, you would be possibly be the sort of person who could provide that kind of upbringing. So that's the sort of hypothetical philosophical situation, again, whose premises beg the conclusion. I don't think... It's that just not a realistic... A it's not a realistic model... And I don't think that somebody who would bring a child into existence, at least voluntarily, would be the sort of person who would be adequately sensitized the child to the horrors of existence. Yes, I know. Well, that's your fundamental. Theory. That's your fundamental claim, essentially. Well, so no, I, I understand well, that that's that a, the claim that you're making. You've 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 made an assertion about about uh, about the kinds of parents these would be. And I'm saying a parallel claim could be made about people who bring exist, bring children into existence in the first place, but. But let's let's set that worry aside for a moment, because precisely because there's the parallel claim that can be made. What I'm saying is, if you do something to somebody, if you, and in this case it's creating a being that is going to cause a vast amount of suffering to that being, you don't justify that by coupling it with some kind of education to help it cope with that suffering. Well, that's the point I was making about. If you're, well, if you're claiming. <laughs> If your claim is initially the claim of asymmetry, you see, you can't have it both ways either, you know. If your claim initially is that it's the asymmetry that's the problem, and then I make a case that, 
while there are conditions under which you can redress that asymmetry, you can't then flip around and say, well, now that you've figured out how to address that asymmetry, the whole argument with regards to be to asymmetry is now invalid. That's not no, a reasonable... Not, pr- well, th- I'm, that I'm seems to be exactly that. what you're doing. Well, what are you saying then? You said, I said... You can never compensate. You can never compensate for the harm done by providing some educational adjunct. adjunct. Well, you're, you're saying no matter... You cannot... You cannot compensate for the harm done. Let's say, we'll, we'll play that argument out. I can educate someone so that they radically increase the amount of good in their life, so that the asymmetry that you described is rectified. And you're saying, well, the suffering is such so that even in principle that asymmetry can never be rectified. It's like, well, then there's just no sense having the argument because your position fundamentally is no matter how I redress the initial asymmetry, it's not good enough. So, well, so then I would say that that casts aspersions on your on your on your yeah. quantitative methodology stipul- to begin you're with. Stipulating something, you stipulating something that I think can't be met in reality. So earlier you tried to call me out on the devil being in the detail, and I'd like to do that now with you. So you think that a child can suffer something quite horrible, but that you can offer some kind of remedial uh, action, such as an education or uh, an upbringing that is going to not only compensate for that, but outstrip it. Uh, Now, if you really think that's true, then it's not clear why you would object, let's say, to the parent who amputates the child's um, leg at birth. Because that parent can just say, but I'm going to provide the kind of education, the kind of upbringing that is going to make this child produce more good in the world and and face this tragedy uh, so well that it's going to outweigh the amputation of the leg. Now, what I'm going to say to those sorts of uh, claims is these are just indecent claims. You don't. Well, I'm not like I'm not willing to play that particular argumentative game because I think the the entire the entire question about uh, like leg amputation and remedial education strikes me it's it's just patently absurd as a as a formulation why would we go down that road because it's 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 i'm showing you that the argument you're providing is absurd and i'm having to do that by providing you with an example that you too will see as absurd so let's move away from the what you take to be the okay well you you've taken the upper you've taken the upper hand in the direction of this conversation and i've been willing to go along with that for the last 15 minutes or so, but I'd like to object to that momentarily and ask you to address the issue I brought up about the person who's friendless and familyless and who no one loves or cares for. Is it therefore appropriate while they're asleep to euthanize them? And if, if not, why not? They're not even going to know that it's happened. And if their life is characterized by unbearable suffering and the appropriate action is that they should never be, and you're not going to cause anyone any undue misery by eradicating them from existence, then aren't you morally obligated to do it? Okay, so I know you want to move the conversation in a different direction. I will make one comment about uh, what we've been discussing for the last few minutes, and then I will answer your question. And um, that comment is the general point I'm making is that I don't think you can justify doing something that's going to result in somebody's uh, extreme, uh, to to their extreme detriment uh, by the claim that you can add to that some sort of uh, uh, educational and upbringing benefit that's going to override that. So that's my response to that. Now let me come to your person. Yeah, we can go back uh, to that because I don't think that's a decent characterization of my position. But that's okay. Let's go back to let. Uh, we'll leave that aside for the time being. Okay. Um, so you've got this friendless person who's asleep, and uh, is it wrong to kill him? 
That's oh, no, or do you have a moral obligation to kill him, given your argument? It's stronger no, than that. I, 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 no, I don't. I don't have a moral obligation at all. Uh, okay, why not? Precisely bec- why? I'll tell you why. Because I think that person, ha- because he already exists, has an interest in continuing to exist. And if you were to kill him, albeit in his sleep, you're going to be thwarting that interest. Well, what's the interest? The interest is in continuing to exist. Why does that interest exist? If, if, if existence is fundamentally flawed, then how in the world could the person have an interest in continuing well, to exist? there's an ambiguity. When you say existence is fundamentally flawed, there's an ambiguity between coming into existence and ceasing to exist. So here's the tragedy that I think humans confront. We've got no interest in coming into existence. But once we do, we've got an interest in continuing to exist. Uh, for much of our life, that's not, that interest is not going to be overridden uh, by the suffering that we experience. Because although we are suffering, uh, it's, it's not so bad for parts of our life that it's going to override that very powerful interest in continuing to exist. But there does often come a point at the end of life, towards the end of life, where the suffering is so unbearable that it does override the interest. And that is, I think, the sort of scenarios where uh, euthanasia or assisted suicide is going to be warranted. So the non-existent have no interest in coming into existence. Those who do exist have an interest in not going out of existence. And uh, I would uh, therefore not only not have an obligation uh, to uh, kill the sleeping friendless person, I'd, I'd have an obligation not to do that. Well, the non-existent have no interest or no non-interest in coming into being. It's not reasonable to talk about the potential interest of the non-existence, non-existent without talking, well, talking also about their non-interest. So no, I also think that that's a specious argument. But I don't think that you've addressed my claim with regards to the sleeping friendless person because you're claiming that they do have an interest in continuing to exist, but I don't see that you've justified that in any way possible. By eliminating them, you're not causing anyone who's on, on, who's, who exists and knows them any pain. Maybe you're even offering them a relief, and they don't even well, know you're going to do it. <clears throat> so yeah. where's the interest they have in the continuation of their life? And what if you judge their life to be characterized fundamentally by not only suffering on their part, but by their production of undue suffering on other people's parts, then why don't you have a moral obligation just to end their life? There are lots of... of I mean, you're also making that case about the end of life. You're jumping from one issue to another, and it's not possible to discuss all of them. So uh, let's discuss one at a time. We won't get to them all. Uh, You're actually assuming here a hedonistic view. You're assuming that the only way that we can cash out... Uh, the badness of somebody's death is in terms of subsequent unpleasant experiences. And that is a faulty assumption. Um, in fact, uh, you're going beyond that assumption. You're going beyond a hedonistic assumption uh, because even hedonists can think that somebody's death is bad for that person. They can think it because of the good experiences that that person is deprived of through their death. So you're actually making two assumptions. First of all, you're making the hedonistic assumption, and secondly, you're making the assumption of what's known as the the so-called existence requirement. You're assuming that somebody has to exist in order for them to be harmed. Uh, And this happens to be the Epicurean argument, uh, and there's lots to be said for the Epicurean argument, but there's lots to be said for criticisms of the Epicurean argument. And what you're doing in presenting this challenge to me 
is you're just making all the Epicurean assumptions and you're assuming there's no response anybody could possibly have to that. Well, no, I'm just asking you what your response is. My response is that not all interests are reducible to pleasure and pain. Well, then I think you've undermined the argument that you make at the beginning of your, no, of your entire antinatalist before, I track. Don't reduce it, I don't reduce everything to pleasure and pain. I've said that, I don't know, probably half a dozen times now. I know I've you've said, said it, but the entire understructure of your argument presupposes it. No, it so you, the fact that you can structure it that way and then claim that that's not what you're doing doesn't stop that from being what you're doing. But well, let me see if not. I can... Okay, well... Then I then I don't understand your argument. You're basically stating that the conditions of existence are such so that it would be better if it never if it if it never came into being. Is is that correct? If I got that part That's right, correct. But it doesn't have to be cashed out in terms of pleasure and pain. Okay, then cash it out some other way. There are a variety of ways of cashing it out. So one way would be, let's say, on um, a desire satisfaction account. So their lives go better or worse depending on whether desires are satisfied. Now, desire satisfaction is not the same as pleasure because your desire can be satisfied without your being aware of it and therefore you don't have the positive mental state but your desire is satisfied. So uh, on that sort of view, I can desire something, including, by the way, things that uh, are posthumous. I can desire, for example, that my body not be desecrated after my death. And then if my body is desecrated after my death, my desire has been thwarted. So something bad has happened to me even though I no longer exist and even though I can no longer experience it. Now that is, I'm not, I'm wedded to this view, but what I'm telling you is there are alternative to the, alternatives to the hedonistic view uh, whereby you can explain bad things happening to people without their having a subjective state that accompanies it. Well, I, it isn't obvious to me that the desire satisfaction reformulation of your argument is as qualitatively distinct from the initial formulation. You, you've, you, you've added the additional variable of potential unconscious satisfaction or something like that, but I don't see that that substantively changes the structure of your initial argument. Exactly. And so the my, problem the so far is, is that I'm trying to... See, I wouldn't do. I wouldn't justify being on hedonic grounds, but it seems to me that, and the reason that I'm doing that at the moment is because I'm trying to play the game by the rules that you that I thought you were setting down. Well, I think you're thinking wrong there, because I'm, well, then, I'm, so okay, so let's go to your objection. You said, well, it isn't pleasure versus pain; it's desire versus satisfaction. No, no I oh, didn't sorry. say it's that. I said there's another. That's another alternative. Alternative. The way I've set up the issue is an asymmetry between harms and benefits, between good things and bad things. There are no okay, so let's go with that. We don't... Oh, fine. If we won't talk about pleasure and pain, then that's fine. So the bad outweighs the good. We can go with regards to the bad and good. I'm willing to accept the terminology that you lay down. I don't want to quibble about that. My point is that there are modes of conducting yourself so that what you're describing as the good can be, and, and well, wait, there's one more element to your argument, is that we're characterizing it in terms of good versus bad, and you're making the case that the bad outweighs the good, which is, again, an arithmetic argument, even if it's vaguely parameterized. And then I say, well, wait a second, there's ways that you conduct yourself so that the good outweighs the bad, and then you say, well, you can't do that because you're using an arithmetic, essentially an arithmetic parameterization. It's like, well, 
Look, you can't you can't object to what I'm doing if it's the same thing that you're doing. And if if that isn't the game you want to play, then we can play a different one. No, you've now shifted back to the conversation we were having just before you asked me uh, for the final time about the friendless uh, sleeping person. You've moved back to that discussion. So uh, let me try and get us back to the discussion about uh, the friendless person who's sleeping. And uh, what I've said to you is that my argument for antinatalism does not presuppose a hedonistic view. Uh, It's formulated in terms of the good and the bad. Uh, It is neutral uh, with respect to particular accounts of what is uh, good and what is bad. You've now presented me with a case about the sleeping friendless person. and you're well, How can it be neutral with regards to that? that you know, I, you can't, I can't just give you a free pass on that. It's like, okay, it's good versus bad. And then you say, well, it's neutral to what the content of those categories is. It's like, no, sorry, no, it can't be. because then the, con- the con- okay. neutral to the content of the categories. It's neutral to different views about how we cash out what things in life are good and what things in life are bad. Well, neutral in what way? Like, you can't just say that all potential accounts of what's good and what's bad are valid to your argument. That, that doesn't well, work. Uh, you have to uh, define good and bad somehow. So, in uh, Better Never to Have Been, I pointed out that there are um, a number of competing conceptions of what makes a life go well. And what I showed is, irrespective of which of those ones you take, uh, which, irrespective of which ones you choose... Uh, the point about there being more bad than good is going to prevail. So perhaps you can come up with some fourth or fifth or sixth account. Perhaps there'll be highly implausible accounts, and perhaps on those accounts my argument will not go through. But on the most plausible accounts, I've argued that there is more bad than good. Okay, so I would say, well, Mm -hmm. if you adopt a noble and heroic mode of being, then I think that your argument is specious. I don't think that that's true. You're coming back to the previous point, and this is what I find frustrating about the conversation, is we're moving in in a certain trajectory. You actually forced me to move on from the discussion to which you're now bringing me back, to answer your question about uh, the sleeping friendless person. And when I give you a response to that, you're now slipping back in to challenge me on the very issue you asked me to move on from. Now, um, I'm not prepared to play that game. So I'm going to come back to the sleeping uh, friendless person, and I'm going to say that when I uh, argue that I ought not to kill him because killing him would thwart an interest of his, I am not committed to the view uh, that he's going to experience anything bad. So okay, so what's his the, interest? What's his interest? That's the question I was trying to get at. You said he has an interest at stake that you shouldn't be interfering with. Well, so what's his interest? It's an interest in continuing to exist. Why does he have that interest? That's a very good question as to why he has that interest. Uh, and uh, it's not clear to me how we would sort of get specifics on this. But one well, thing anything. Just, uh, they don't have the, to be specifics, just some vague characterization of what his interest might conceivably be would suffice for me. Well, for one thing, he wants to continue living. Well, he doesn't if he's asleep. No, he does in a dispositional state. He's got the desire in a dispositional state. Um, What if he's suicidal? What if he's, okay, he's a suicidal, friendless, familyless person who's asleep. Good, and then we come up with refined views that take into account not just actual desires, but ideal desires. And those are ones that you would have if you were fully informed. And if it were the case that if he were fully informed, he would still be suicidal, then it might be that his life is not worth continuing. 
but it might still be that I ought not to kill him because I don't have adequate uh, certainty about the, not just certainty, I don't have adequate uh, epistemic confidence that, that that's the case. So there, there are lots of confounding variables. Okay, that fine. Come so in. then I would say it would be reasonable for you to not have adequate a- epistemic confidence to make an antinatalist case for no, exactly the same the reasons. No, well, it's not exactly the same reason, and I'll tell you why. Because they're, they're quite plausible accounts about why existing people would have an interest in continuing to exist. We can't be certain about them. Uh, I can't be sure that the Epicurean argument is false. But um, if the Epicurean argument uh, is false, and I think it's true, and I act on it, and I go around painlessly killing people, and I'm wrong, I've committed major atrocities. Whereas if my antinatalist argument is mistaken, and I've failed to bring people into existence as a result, there are no major atrocities there. And so if you're looking at how you respond to uncertainty, there's a very well, important that, that's asymmetry not necessarily between killing case. somebody and not creating somebody. If, if, you're, if your antinatalist argument taken to the logical extreme produced the extinction of humanity, then I would consider that an atrocity. So I don't see that... It might be an atrocity if you kill them off. I, I agree about that. But I don't think it'd be an atrocity through humans dying out through non Right, I, well, precisely. You don't think that that would be an atrocity. And I think yes. that that's actually part of the, part of the extreme uh, danger of your argument. I think that would be a catastrophic uh, uh, atrocity. And I think Why? that the fact that you claim otherwise indicates that you have a profoundly anti-human uh, perspective, given that no. your position is... You know, here I was just writing a chapter... Um, for this book I have coming out and I was trying to address the motivations of people like the high school kids who shot up uh, Columbine Mm -hmm. and I analyzed the writings in some depth and the more literate of the two makes he makes a very strong antinatalist case he basically says the conditions of the world are appalling that human beings are lives are basically rife with suffering and malevolence and that it would be better if they had never existed at all. And that's the ethical grounds upon which he uh, purports to judge existence as lacking and wanting and then to act out precisely what he did act out. And it's the justification that the vast majority of people who were engaged in such things as mass slaughter um, used to justify their their actions. Before I address this... Let me note that you've moved on to a new argument now, one which you raised briefly earlier and we put aside, the sort of argument about the Nazis. Uh, here using okay, well, what is it that you would like, if you don't like the way I'm moving this, what would you like uh, to discuss? Uh, oh, no, I'm quite happy to discuss it. All I want to signal is a move to a different argument, because what I find frustrating is that when you sort of run up against the wall in in one argument, you just seamlessly... Well, what, wall, what walls have I... I don't see that. I don't believe that I've run up against the wall. But, what wall is it that you think I've run up against? I think we'll both listen to the podcast later and or the, the show later. Well, just name see. one. Gentlemen, well, the, the issue that we were just if I may interject... <laughs> Sorry, gentlemen. So we've been okay. going for an hour. Um, I, th- I think it, it's been really reasonably well so far um i just want to have one question for each of you if i may um david and jordan at david first what are the what is your ultimate goal with your argument for antinatalism would you like living 
beings to not exist sometime in the future. So before I answer that question, I don't want this to end without my addressing uh, Jordan's argument about how dangerous my, my views are. So uh, may I just quickly say something about absolutely. that and then I'll address absolutely. your question. So um, is it possible for antinatalists to go out and do terrible things in the name of antinatalism? Absolutely, that's possible. But I believe they would be distorting uh, the, the theory. Um, if we were to judge a theory by its ability to be distorted for nefarious ends, any theory would, uh, would, would run afoul. Uh, religious views are abused by some people and not by others. Secular views are abused by some people and not by others. Antinatalism could be abused by some people and not by others. And that's why I want to be quite insistent about what antinatalism does and does not imply. It does not imply uh, the extermination or the murder of, uh, of anybody. But it does imply, and I'll come now to answer your question, it does imply non-procreation. Now, do I have any sense that humanity is going to en masse embrace this view and cease to procreate? No, I'm not deluded. I'm not, uh, I'm not naive. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, humanity will come to an end at some point, and uh, so will sentient life in general. And I think that it will be good when there are no uh, sentient beings left, although I am concerned about how they cease to exist. Uh, what I can hope to achieve in the short run is for certain people to see the force of the antinatalist arguments and for themselves to desist from procreation, not to bring further beings into existence. That would be further human beings, but also not to breed animals that were going to suffer unspeakably. And I think that every person or every couple that makes that sort of decision is responsible for preventing an immense amount of bad in the world. And those are small measures that each person can take relative to the whole, but they're nonetheless very significant. Okay, so uh, I'll, I'll let you ask me a question in a second. I just want to respond to no that. No problem. Uh, and the, the issue here is uh, David claims that his, his claim that it would be better that sentient life cease to exist, that can motivate let's say reprehensible actions but those that's a misreading and a and a distortion of the position rather than an inevitable and logical consequence of the position and i would say well it's very necessary to distinguish between distortion and necessary and logical consequence and it's very difficult for me to see how the initial claim that sentient that sentience itself should not exist because it's a positive harm and then to make the further claim, well, that anything negative that might come out as a consequence of that claim is a misreading of its intent, I think is palpably absurd. I think it's a logical consequence, not a distortion. If you, if you make the case that existence, sentient existence as such is so evil, let's say, that it shouldn't be allowed to exist, then people who take that a tiny step farther and act proactively can hardly be said necessarily to be distorting the position. It's just convenient for the initial formulator of the position to dissociate himself from those consequences by saying that they're misapprehensions. But I don't think they're misapprehensions. They're logical well, conclusions. They're logical derivatives. Well, Jordan, I think I, think I, would, I would disagree with you on that one because one is a voluntary choice not to procreate. And if someone takes that argument and that's the basic argument just do not procreate do not create new life and if someone takes that argument and says oh so that means i must exterminate life i think that that's a fundamental uh, misunderstanding of the original 
argument, wouldn't you well, say? Well, possibly, but also, no, I wouldn't say that, because I would say that that initial argument has, it, it, it's not bounded with a steel fence around it. It has, it has implications and connotations. And you can say, well, some connotations aren't logical consequences of the initial position. But I would say determining what connotations aren't logical consequences of the initial position is an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. And you can't just do it um, in a manner that's convenient for the ethics of your initial argument. I mean, you could, you could say, well, yeah, it's, it's going too far from the antinatalist position to argue for active extermination. Fair enough, but that's by that's no proof that the argument for extermination isn't somehow implicit in the antinatalist claim. It's convenient if it isn't, but but I think there's a great danger that it is, even if it's not a certainty. And I I, I certainly know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that a very very large number of people who've done tremendously used variants of what looks like the antinatalist position. So the empirical data on that, let's say, is very, very sound. Now you can say, well, they've misunderstood it. It's like, well, okay, it's possible that they've misunderstood it, but it's also possible that they've understood it extraordinarily well. Well, Okay, and then you had a question for me as well. Well, I I understand that. I I, I understand that. And and if we take the empirical points you were making, then I think people shouldn't espouse religious views either because there's plenty of empirical evidence about how that has been taken to extremes and used uh, uh, to the great great detriment of humanity. Well, I won't won't address that. Let let me – there was a question that you wanted to ask. (laughs) Yes, well, I I think you you have fundamentally answered it. Um, Basically, my my question was – to you was going to be uh, what are you afraid of uh, in terms of the utilitarian consequences of uh, David's argument uh, so if, I, if I'm clear you are afraid that people will use that argument to cause harm well it's, it's no I, I wouldn't say that I, 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 am, I am concerned about that I don't think that's my fundamental objection my fundamental objection is that the, the doctrine is is deeply deeply uh, nihilistic and anti-human, and that it is precisely the sort of doctrine that undermines the kind of faith in being that people that it, that it's necessary for people to manifest in order for them to live forthrightly and nobly and properly in the world. And I, I think it's terribly dangerous in that regard. And and I don't think that David has done a decent job at all of addressing. The fundamental objection to the to the antinatalist argument, which is the idea that being is somehow flawed beyond redemption, let's say, which I think is the fundamental answer. There are modes of being that redeem being, and the mode of being that redeems me, being is is voluntary heroism in the face of tragedy and malevolence, and that lifts up being and ennobles it. And even if that's not the mode of action that characterizes most people, it's a potential mode of action. And it's the mode of action that, that is the proper move forward towards redemption rather than the cessation of being itself. And I would say that's the fundamental religious conundrum that's plagued mankind since the beginning of time. Life is suffering and, and rife with malevolence. What do you do about that? Well, one answer is cease to exist or cease existence itself. The other is to heroically confront the problem of being and to lift up the tragedy of the world on your shoulders and to move forward in a courageous manner and to redeem 
being in as a consequence of your actions. And I think that that's I th- and it's not a matter of educating people to do that. It's not some manipulation of the manner in which they view the world. It's the the freeing of the part of their spirit that's so powerful and so strong that it can withstand the tragedy of being and its malevolence without becoming without suffering beyond their capacity and without um, without becoming corrupt. And and I would also say that that's the core idea that underlies Western civilization itself, which is that the individual, say, made in the image of God, has sufficient intrinsic nobility of spirit to withstand the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune and to prevail, and that that's a positive good, not a mere medication for an intolerable disease. And the the fact that I'm, an, uh, 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 what would you say, an, uh, an, I oppose the antinatalist position is because I think it's it's pessimistic, fatal, fatalistic, and fundamentally existentially cowardly, because it doesn't, and it's it's anti-human in that it de- denies the fact that the human spirit has the capacity to grapple with being, even in its even given clear apprehension of all its intrinsic horrors. So I think it's a terribly dangerous position, and I think it leads to nothing but but terrible outcomes, despite David's uh, claims that anyone who takes this argument to any terrible conclusion is misunderstanding it. I don't think they're misunderstanding it at all. Uh, okay, um, you know, in Faust, for example, in Goethe's Faust, the character Mephistopheles essentially makes an antinatalist argument. He says that the conditions of being are so unbearable that it would be better if being never existed at all. And Goethe outlines the consequences of Mephistopheles' position, and they're dreadful. He's Satan himself, essentially, in the Faust story. And so I think David's disavowal of the negative consequences of the antinatalist position are um, are convenient for for are convenient for him to retain some belief in the ethics of the position, but bear no relationship whatsoever to how the philosophy will manifest itself in the real world. Okay. Uh, that that may be a, a point. David uh, does... Uh, Dave, you'll, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but you do uh, agree that your view is pessimistic. Um, I, I don't know about the cowardly part. Um, do you want to uh, respond to that in more of a closing type of statement? Because I think yes, uh, Jordan has, 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 has given uh, uh, quite a lengthy statement there in rebuttal. Let me make a conciliatory comment uh, by way of conclusion. So I do think that my position is a pessimistic one, although I don't think unduly pessimistic. It's certainly not a nihilistic position. It's, uh, it's based on uh, very fundamental moral values. And all I hope that uh, if it's my pessimism that needs to be tested, or Jordan's optimism, I, I hope that it's my pessimism that, that's tested. Okay, that's... Uh... So what that means is that uh, rather than the terrible things befalling him that would cure him of his view, I hope that good things before me to try to cure me of mine. <laughs> all right. Yes, I hope that too. I hope that too. I, I truly do. I, I truly do. Well, it's uh, been almost an hour and a half of uh, two academic giants, and um, I think uh, some very interesting argumentation. Uh, thank you both for, for joining us and uh, for having this discussion. I know it uh, hasn't been easy at times, 
um, and frustrating for both of you, uh, perhaps. But I do think listeners will uh, gain a lot of value out of this conversation. Thanks very much. Yes, well, thank you. <coughs> thank you for... <coughs> excuse me. No problem. Thank you for setting it up, and also, David, for agreeing to, to talk about this. It's a very difficult issue, and I think you have substantial philosophical courage and even daring to put it forward as an argument. Thank you. Nice to discuss it with you. Uh, David, Just uh, I know you don't like to be found, but if perhaps uh, people do want to engage with you, uh, do you want to give an email address where they can send uh, polite mm -hmm. emails <laughs> um, and have no, discussion I, I, I or, get, or not? I get far too many communications <laughs> already. I'm just unable to deal with them all. You'll, you'll, uh, you'll stay out of it. If people want to read more, I'd rather stay out. If people want to read more, they, they can read the books that I've written. Sure. Uh, and... Uh, Jordan, you've got a book obviously coming out uh, very soon, uh, but uh, for those who haven't uh, engaged with your work before, do you want to just uh, punch your podcast and, 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 and your work? Yeah, well, I mean, the best source is YouTube. I have a channel there called Jordan Peterson Videos. But I, I would also point out that in this new book I have coming out called 12 Rules for Life, there's a chapter, chapter 6, which is called put your house in perfect order before you criticize the world that the details that I would say constitutes an elaborated written response to something that's akin to the antinatalist position. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, gentlemen. Really appreciate it. And uh, yes, you. it's been an absolute pleasure. David and Jordan, thank you so much from the opposite sides of the world. Uh, thank you once again. And we hopefully will have both of you in the studio sometime to hash it out a bit more. Yeah, well, let me know when it's ready and I'll tweet it and all of that. Oh, so yeah, no, that, uh, no, no problem. But uh, we'd like to get you get you on a plane to South Africa as well, Jordan, and then we can have this uh, can have this in, in person. Yes, well, that would be that would be something that we could perhaps arrange. Uh, yeah. I'll be traveling a lot next year, and so maybe we could do that. Okay. Good luck uh, with all of that. Thank you so much. Uh, and uh, until next time. Good. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Right. right, Ramon. So uh, we've uh, lost the sounds of uh, Cape Town and the beach in the background. Well, uh, very, very, very interesting. I, I think, personally, I think David is philosophically more sound. And I think Jordan has struggled with the intricate philosophy of the argument it's interesting because i think there's a problem in the interface between the philosophy and where it translates and and jordan's coming from a psychological aspect the way humans engage with the entire world what sentience means what life means um and so i i i, I find value in both of their arguments i just think that perhaps they go past each other at points because of their backgrounds and and where they're coming from yeah, well, it's a, it's a philosopher versus a psychologist. And, uh, what was interesting to me is just the, the, the candor and the grace of each one's demeanor yeah. towards a very, very Absolutely. difficult subject. I think antinatalism could be one of the most dangerous ideas. Well, uh, yes, and I, I think, uh, very important. Look, if, if you really want to engage with this, you need to go and read a lot more into, into 
the work around antinatalism. Uh, I think also um, pro-mortalism is kind of separate, and that that was that's a completely separate argument. Discussed them, so that is important uh, things to understand. Uh, but but yeah, I, I, I'm going to take some time. I'm going to go back and listen to this again. And and as you say, just fantastic to have two two of these guys chatting out like this and 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 being prepared to to have this type of debate, which uh, is uh, too seldom. Yes, and I hope that um, our listeners enjoyed it, and we will certainly see them the next time around. Yeah. So uh, if you want to follow the renegade report you can obviously find us on twitter at renegade underscore report ramon is at roman Kabanak. i'm at jonathan underscore wit uh, you can also support us on patreon if you like the show and you like what we're doing that's uh, how we are funded thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next time cheers This is CliffCentral.com.